We're taking three chapters today. Obviously, I won't read all three of those. But to understand these chapters, you need to see that this is something like a sandwich. There are parallel texts in 24 and 26. You'll notice if you read these that we have a similar story repeated. We have David sparing Saul's life in chapter 24 and David sparing Saul's life in chapter 26. And in the middle, there is the story about David and Nabal and Abigail. And these have a common theme that tie them all together. I'm going to read chapter 24 and then refer throughout the sermon to the other chapters as well. 1 Samuel chapter 24, hear the word of the Lord. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. 
And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Might be a negative way to start a sermon, but let me just ask you, what are the things you most dread? What are the things, kind of the worst things that could happen to you? Maybe a terrible sickness, maybe the victory of a certain presidential candidate, death, perhaps, poverty. Well, if the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed today together, and which on most days, uh, Lord's Days, we pray together, if that's any indication about the worst thing that could happen to you, the only thing mentioned in the Lord's Prayer from which we need the Lord to deliver us, it's evil. Now, you may know that it's not clear actually how to translate that. It says the evil, and that could be the evil in general, impersonal, or it could be the evil one. And if we look at that, it's still not exactly clear. Is it asking that we would be delivered from suffering evil against us? Or is it asking that we would be delivered from committing evil? And if you look at what leads up to it, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from the evil. And so it looks like in context, it's saying, Lord, the one thing that is most harmful to me from which I need you to deliver me most of all is from committing evil. Now, when are we most tempted to commit evil? Well, oftentimes it's when evil is committed against us, isn't it? And our our natural instinct is to pay in the same kind in which we have been paid. And the thing that ties these three chapters together, and the reason I'm I'm making the attempt at least to, to, to bring them all together today is because They each have a situation in which David was treated with evil, and he had the opportunity to pay evil for evil, but he was rescued from committing evil against those who were paying him evil. Now, the first chapter is this opportunity that David has in the cave. If you remember from a few weeks ago, in the last year when we broke off from 1 Samuel for a couple of weeks, do you remember Saul was about to trap David, and then the news came to Saul, the Philistines are invading the land, and and Saul has to break off the pursuit of David, and he goes after the Philistines. Well, we pick up the story here, and it says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told where David is. And so he goes after David again. He takes 3,000 of his chosen men and he finds where David was, and then he had a biological necessity, and so he went into a cave to relieve himself, and it just so happened that that was the cave in which David and his men were hiding. Now, some of his men interpreted God's providence, God's arranging of the events, as an indication of God's will. And they said, it's obvious what God wants you to do here, isn't it? Because God has put your enemy into your hands. Well, what do you do when your enemy falls into your hands? It's obvious, isn't it? And so his men urged him to kill Saul because the Lord had given Saul into David's hands. 
That is a, always a temptation, by the way, for us who are believers in providence, in the fact that God controls all things. We can try to intuit from providence what God wants us to do. And sometimes that's safe to do, especially when it's a negative providence. When we're trying to get that job and the employer says no, guess what? It's God's will that we don't have that job. It's a negative providence. Or I propose marriage to someone and she, she says, absolutely not. Well, it's pretty clear what God's will for me is, right? I shouldn't marry her. Why not? Because she said no, and so God is saying no. So when it's a negative one, it's easier to interpret. But when it's a positive one, just because I got that job offer, does that mean I should take it? And see, there we have to uh, appeal not only to providence, but we have to look to God's word and apply principles of God's word. And so we need to be very careful about, about interpreting positive opportunities as God's will. I, as a pastor, I've, I've, obviously people come to me and they tell me, well, God wants me to do this. And uh, sometimes I have to say, no, he doesn't. Uh, a young woman said, well, God wants me to, to marry this young man. And she was no longer in my church. She'd moved to another city. She called me. She wanted me to do the wedding. I said, well, tell me about this young man. Is he a Christian? No, he's not a Christian. But God brought him into my life. Therefore, I should marry him. So what did she do? She interpreted God's providence. And I agree, if God's in control of all things, he brought this young man into her life. I agree with that. But does that mean that she should marry him? What does she need to do? I said, no, you need to look to God's word to decide what you should do related to this man. And no, I won't do the wedding either if he's not a Christian. And so that's just one example. But it's easy for any of us to in interpret God's providence as an indication of God's will. We need to be careful with that. Now, David, what did he do? He did take advantage of the situation. He did creep up to Saul while Saul was was in the cave, and he cut off a corner of his robe. Corner of his robe. Interesting. Now, the, the robe has, has significance here. It's his royal robe. And if you go back to, to chapter 15, uh, verses 27 and 28, it says, um, no, wrong chapter. 15, 27, and 28, it says, Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. And so already we've seen in Samuel how the tearing off a piece of robe is symbolic of the tearing off of a piece of the kingdom. And you remember when Jonathan and Saul made a, a I'm sorry, Jonathan and David made a covenant in chapter 8, uh, 18 verse 4, what did Jonathan do? He took off his, his princely robe and he gave it to David. And so when David went up and snuck up and cut off a piece of, of Saul's robe, he was taking from Saul a, a piece of his royal authority. And immediately David was conscious stricken that he had done even that. Why was he conscious stricken? It was because he had taken instead of received the kingdom. The kingdom was promised to him. He knew that. Saul knew that, as we will find out. It seems like more and more people are knowing that, but it wasn't David's place to take it from Saul. 
but rather to wait for God to give it to him. Now, his men didn't think he went far enough, and he had rather forcefully to restrain them. In verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words, did not permit them to attack Saul. So Saul rose, left the cave, went on his way. Then David, afterwards, he went out and he called to Saul. Now David kind of reinterprets his actions. He was conscience-stricken. He knew that he had done something he shouldn't do by, by taking a piece of Saul's royal robe. But then he went out, and there was another side to it. And it's not that it was inaccurate, but it was another side to it that he presented to Saul. And what was that? He could have done more. He could have done much, much more. He could have taken not only a piece of Saul's robe, he could have taken Saul's life and more or less immediately been declared king of Israel. And so he presented this to Saul, and he said, I'm not going to lift my hand against you. I had the opportunity to do so. See this piece of your robe? I could have done so. My men wanted me to do so, but I didn't do so. And he said, I am not going to lift up my hand against you. And if you look, for example, at verse 11, where he holds up the piece of the robe, for the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no our translation says wrong. It's the, same, it's the same word in here that's translated evil in other places. There is no evil or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So you are treating me with evil, but I did not treat you with evil. Rather, I spared you. I did good to you. Now, the question is, does David not care about evil? Is he just saying, well, this is no big deal? I'm just going to overlook this evil that you're trying to do against me. You're trying to murder me, but I'm just not going to take this into account. It's not a big deal. On the contrary, it's such a big deal that David said, it is beyond my pay grade to deal with it. It is beyond me to deal with this evil that is such a big evil, and I will not take it into my hand, but there is one into whose hands I will commit it. And this is important because... If we refrain from paying evil for evil, we are not saying that evil is not a big deal. On the contrary, we are saying it is such a big deal that we are not competent to deal with it. Who is? He says in verse 12, May the Lord, this is strong language, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. And that's, that could be a double-edged sort of thing. He's saying, I'm not going to be one of those, but hey, if the, if the, as they say in Spanish, if the coat fits, put it on. So he may be saying to, to Saul, if, if this describes you, well, apply it to yourself. But my hand shall not be against you. Then he says, I'm no threat to you. I'm like a dead dog. I'm like a flea. And then verse 15, may the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So he's saying this is a big deal. And so I'm calling on the Lord to deal with this. So here he shows that we are not to overlook evil, but rather we are to commend it to the one who can deal with it and who will deal with it justly. We have Saul's response in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. David finished speaking. Saul raised up his voice. And David had said, had called him my father. He had bowed down to him. Keep that in mind. 
He bowed down. He said, my father. And then Saul says, is this your voice? My son, David. He was his son-in-law, remember? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He recognized that David had paid good for the evil that he had received. Then he acknowledged something that everybody is figuring out. And Jonathan has already said that Saul, his father, knew, but he admits it finally. Verse 20, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. But when that happens, he says, don't do what new kings usually do, and that is eliminate everybody from the previous regime. He says, don't wipe me out. Don't cut off my offspring. And you remember that David had already promised Jonathan in the covenant they made that he would not do that. He wouldn't act like a typical new potentate and eliminate all of the previous uh, administration. He says, swear to me that you will not. Verse 20, and David swore this to Saul. Saul went home. David and his men went up to the stronghold. Sounds like the end, doesn't it? Well, hold on. Uh, there's a, the, 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 the sandwiched incident in, verse, in chapter 25, and then there's kind of a, a repeat of David sparing Saul's life. But there's half a verse I want to point out to you. Verse 20, chapter 25, verse 1. Half a verse, that's all he gets. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's it. That's all he gets. This book is called 1 Samuel. The next book is called 2 Samuel. He's the major player. He's the one whom God rose up, raised up. And now he gets half a verse when he dies? Now, I don't want to make too much of that. But we may conclude that Samuel's job was done. Samuel had done what he was appointed to do. He had prepared the way for the anointed of the Lord, and so it was time for him to bow out. And so we see here very simply, very concisely, he died and was buried in his house, not at some great tomb, not at some great shrine. He was buried in his house, and that was it. He prepared the way for the Lord. And so when you're reading in the New Testament and you come to John the Baptist and you say, really? That's how he ends? He gets his head cut off, and his disciples come and bury him. After he was so faithful to the Lord, that he just gets a, a line like that? Yes, he gets a line. Why? Because he had done what he was supposed to do. He, too, prepared the way for the anointed of the Lord. And so here we have a, a, a prototype of John the Baptist preparing the way for the anointed of the Lord. He did his job, and so he could rest in peace knowing that he had prepared the way for the anointed one. Now, the next story. The next story recounts how David protected Nabal's flock. Nabal was a, a wealthy man, had great flocks. He was also a, uh, an irascible man. He was a nasty man. Uh, and he had a very beautiful and astute wife named Abigail. And what we, we read here, just in summary, is David and his men, who are about 600 now, they voluntarily protected Nabal's men from raiders. They, they protected them while they were out in the fields. They protected the flocks. And so it was feast time. And David said, well, let's, let's just see if he would pay us back 
some, some good for the good that we have done for him. And so he sends some servants and asks, uh, and very humbly, and says, could you spare some of your, your, your feasts for us? We, we've protected you. And he received a very nasty and dismissive reply from Nabal. And then uh, the word gets back to David. David says to 400 of his men, put on your swords. We're going to kill every male in Nabal's household. And in the meantime, in the meantime, Abigail, um, she hears about this. And she realizes that disaster is coming towards them. And so she gets a bunch of supplies together, and she sends some servants ahead. And then she goes and she meets David. And she urged him not to kill anyone. In verse, uh, verse 14 to 20, by the way, these three chapters are mostly speeches. There's some narration, but it's, it's mostly speeches here. And here we have uh, Abigail presenting her speech. Um, and here we have actually the first speeches of the, uh, the servant saying how great David was. And then we have Abigail's speech in verse 23. She hurried, she got down from her donkey, she fell before David on her face, bowed to the ground, fell at his feet. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. She's talking about her husband here, Nabal. For as his name is, Nabal means fool. And that must have been a nickname. I doubt his mom called him that, but everybody called him fool. For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. You see, David was incensed in verse 21. He says, he has returned me evil for good. I paid him good. He's paying me back evil. Now it's my turn to pay what? Evil for evil. And then she says, no, don't, don't do that. He paid you evil. Don't respond in kind. And the, the expression, it's, it's translated literally from the Hebrew here, saving with your own hand. The Lord protected you from saving with your own hand. Do you remember in chapter 24, David said what? My hand will not go out against you, King Saul. And now his hand was going to go out against Nabal. And Abigail says, the Lord has protected you from saving with your own hand. And then she says in verse 29, evil shall not be found in you. And then she says in verse 31, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And then David responded, and he's very relieved here. David said to Abigail, verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. And then if you go down to verse 39, when David heard, uh, the, the rest of the story, by the way, is that um, he turns back, he takes the provision, she goes back. Nabal is having a big party like for a king. He's drunk. She doesn't mention anything. Next day she mentions what had happened. He has a stroke or a heart attack and dies 10 days later. And uh, when David heard that Nabal was dead, verse 39, he said this, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. 
and has kept back his servant from, it's translated here, wrongdoing. It's the word we keep hearing, evil. The Lord has returned the evil on the ball on his own head. You see what David's saying is? Oh, I almost, I was at the point of paying evil for evil, but, but the Lord prevented me from paying evil for evil. But the Lord, now he has the prerogative to do that. The Lord paid evil on the evil that Nabal had committed. Now the rest of the story is that once David heard that uh, Nabal had died, he proposed marriage to Abigail and she agreed and so they married. And then there's a little note in verse 43. David also took Achinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 44, Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So the wives are starting to multiply. There are three now, although one's been given away. This, this is just tucked in there as a preview of, of coming difficulties. So there we have. There we have the, the inside of the sandwich where David was spared from paying evil for evil. Now, chapter 26 And when you read chapter 26, you might think, well, didn't I just read something like this in chapter 24? And you did. But there's some significant differences. Once again, Saul goes up with 3,000 men going after David to seek him in the wilderness. And this time, Saul doesn't just happen to fall into the cave where David was. This time, David goes after Saul. Um, This time, David takes his nephew Abishai, and they invade the camp by night. And they walk right up to where Saul is sleeping in the middle of his men with his bodyguard right there who also fell asleep. And the, the, the spear of Saul is there right next to him. You remember the spear? It seems like whenever we see Saul, what's he have in his hand? He has a spear. And what did he do with that spear? Do you remember twice he hurled it at David and once he hurled it at his own son Jonathan? That spear, that same spear was, was right there with him. And Abishai, once again, he's interpreting providence. He says, my Lord, he says, it will not take two strikes. I will pin him to the ground and you will be done with him. You will be done with him. And David once again says no. He says no. So in 26, we we look at the story. So he, he invaded and Abishai says in verse Verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. This is God's providence. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand, here it is again, against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. He says he's going to come to his end. The Lord will take care of that however he does it. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But what did he do? Instead of taking a piece of the robe, this time he takes his spear. And he takes off with with his spear and a jar of water. Not sure exactly why the jar of water, but the spear is, is obvious. This is a symbol of his authority. And he goes to a safe distance and he calls out and first he taunts Abner, who was the king's bodyguard, 
And he says, Abner, where's your master's spear? Because somebody came into the camp and you were asleep. You deserve to die because you did not protect the Lord's anointed. And then Saul recognized David's voice, verse 17. He lifted up his voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? Now, if you go back and you look at David's speech, he dropped that my father stuff. He was done with that. He dropped the bowing to the ground. Uh, he, this time he calls him my lord, the king. But he doesn't say my father. But then Saul recognized his voice and said, is this your voice, my son? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king, not my father. And he said, why does the Lord, my Lord, pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. And then he once again protests innocence before him, harmlessness. And then once again, Saul apparently repents. Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned, return my son David for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly. Haven't we already met a fool? Yes, and so this is interesting. The, the, the author is, is connecting Saul with whom? <coughs> Nabal. Nabal's name is fool, and Saul is saying, I acted like a Nabal. I acted like a fool. There's also that, that verb, about striking. Uh, in Nabal, it says that the Lord struck Nabal in chapter 25, verse 38. And then David, when he talked about Saul, verse 10 of chapter 26, the Lord will strike him. So the author is lining up for us Nabal and Saul, two who had acted foolishly. And he says, come back here, David, return. No problem. No harm will come to you. And David says, if you want your spear, come and get it. <laughs> let one of the young men, don't send any soldiers, just, just, just let one of your young men come, and I'll give you your spear back if you want it. And then once again, verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, there's the providence, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul belatedly blesses David. He had lots of opportunities to do that, didn't he? He could have seen what the Lord was doing with David all along, but finally, belatedly, he says, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place, and that's the last contact that David and Saul had with each other. So David, what did he have to learn here? He knew that he should not raise his hand or send his hand out against the Lord's anointed. That's a, a repeated phrase throughout this. Uh, if you go back to chapter 24, he says in verse 10, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then if you look at chapter 26, he says in verse 9, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed 
and be guiltless. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Uh, verse, verse 16, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, speaking to Abner, the Lord's anointed. When you go down to verse 23, he says, the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David should not put out his hand against whom? Against the Lord's anointed. But he had to learn that he shouldn't put out his hand against Nabal either. The Lord's anointed had protection, special protection. He was, he was anointed by the Lord. But Nabal, the fool, David had to respect his life as well and not put out his hand against him, paying evil for evil. That's what he had to understand, that the same principle applies to the fool as to Saul, who was acting like a fool. Now, these... These uh, stories may well have been on the mind of some New Testament writers. Let me read some texts from the New Testament and see if they sound familiar. Romans 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Almost as if Paul had read 1 Samuel 24 to 26. Although he's quoting also from, from Deuteronomy. This is not just a New Testament idea. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't, if evil is committed against you, don't become the same as those who commit evil against you. Don't pay back evil for evil, but show that you are believers. Show that you really believe in God. Show that you are Christians by paying good for evil. He says the same thing, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians. And here Peter spells out a number of reasons why Christians should not pay evil for evil. He says, do not repay, First uh, Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, for to this you were called. This is your calling. If you're a Christian, your calling is to bless those who curse you. And there's a, a, a blessing promised for you that you may obtain a blessing. What's that blessing? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then he presents some other arguments. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? In other words, if you do what's right, you're less likely to get harmed but you're not completely protected. He says, but even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So here he spells it out. It's worse for the Christian to do evil than to suffer evil. And then he says why. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And if you look at chapter 2, we read it earlier. For to you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's it saying here? Christ is your salvation. If you believe in him, Christ is your redemption, and he's also your example. He shows you how to deal with evil. Now, I, I, I pray for our church that God would deliver us from suffering evil. I pray for Christians around the world, especially those who are in places that are very anti-Christian, that God would, would deliver them from suffering evil. But whatever happens to us, whatever happens to them, that is outside of our control. How people treat us is outside of our control. What is in our hands is how we respond to evil that is committed against us. Like David, Jesus was tempted to take a shortcut, because that's basically what it was in David's case, wasn't it? It was a shortcut in the wilderness that he could have taken. He could have killed Saul in the wilderness, and he could have taken the kingdom for himself. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness as well to take shortcuts so that he could, he could take the kingdom for himself. But like David, he resisted, and he resisted and waited to receive the kingdom from the Father. By resisting the shortcuts, David had to live in the wilderness as an outlaw a little while longer. By resisting the shortcuts, Jesus had to go all the way to the cross. And you know what happened at the cross? People lifted up their hand against the Lord's anointed. That which David refused to do, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Gentiles, they conspired together to to set their hand against the Lord and against his anointed one. But God raised that anointed one up all the way to his right hand and gave him the kingdom because he resisted taking it for himself. Therefore, like David, we need to resist the temptation because Christ has received that kingdom. He is that one who suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. We need to resist doing what David resisted. And what is that? Bringing about salvation with our own hands. You see, David was relieved because he didn't bring about salvation by his own hand. He could have. He could have brought about his own kingship by his own hand, but he resisted that. But we can't. Brothers and sisters, there's no way that we can bring about our own salvation by the work of our own hands. Because what our, what our hands have done is not capable of giving us salvation. But what Christ-pierced hands have done is the only way that we can have salvation. And so, what's the posture we need to take? Trust in him. Trust in him for our salvation, that he worked our salvation for us. And also trust in the Lord when we suffer evil in this year or whenever it might be in the rest of our lives. Not paying evil for evil, but paying good for evil. Trusting the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
says the Lord. So, how do we begin this year? By God's grace, trusting in the one who works salvation by his hand for us and entrusting our lives to the Lord, whatever this year might bring to us, that we might not be guilty of paying evil for evil, but that that prayer we pray every week, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this example we have in David and that he points us to his greater son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who did not avenge himself on his enemies, who did not respond paying evil for evil, but rather suffered evil for our sake, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to you, O Lord. And we pray that as we call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ and followers of him, that as we go out into this world or even in our homes or wherever it might be, and we suffer evil from others, we pray, O God, that you would give us the grace to respond as David was enabled to respond and even more so as Jesus responded, blessing those who curse, that we might follow in the example of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.